Chapter 8 of The Life Story of a Black Bear. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wayne Anderson, Chelsea, Quebec. The Life Story of a Black Bear by Harry Perry Robinson. Chapter 8 Alone in the World. Have you any idea how frightfully stiff one is after nearly five months' consecutive sleep? Of course, a bear is not actually asleep for the greater part of the time, but in a deliciously drowsy condition that is halfway between sleeping and waking, it is very good. Of course, you lose all count and thought of time. Days and weeks and months are all the same. You only know that, having been asleep, you are partly awake again. There is no light, but you can see the wall of your den in front of you. And dimly you know that, while all the world outside is snow-covered and swept with bitter winds, and the earth is gripped solid in the frost, you are very warm and comfortable. Changes of temperature do not reach you, and you sit and croon to yourself and mumble your paws, and all sorts of thoughts and tangled scraps of dreams go swimming through your head, until, before you know it, you've forgotten everything and are asleep again. Then again you find yourself awake. Is it hours or days or weeks since you were last awake? You do not know, and it does not matter. So you croon and mumble and dream and sleep again, and wake and croon and mumble and dream. Sometimes you are conscious of feeling stiff and think you will change your position. But after all, it does not matter. Nothing matters, for you are already floating off again. The wall of your den grows indistinct, and you are away in dreams once more for an hour or a day or a week. At last, a day comes when you wake into something more like complete consciousness than you have known since you shut yourself up. There's a new feeling in the air, a sense of moisture and fresh smells are mingling with the warm, dry scent of your den. And you are aware that you have not changed your position for more than a quarter of a year, but have been squatting in your heels with your back against the wall and your nose folded into your paws across your breast. And you want to stretch your hind legs dreadfully, but you do not do it. It is still too comfortable where you are. You may move a little and have a vague idea that it might be rather nice outside, but you do not go to see. You only take the other paw into your mouth, and still crooning to yourself, you are asleep again. This happens again and again, and each time the change in the feeling of the air is more marked and the sense of the new year outside grows stronger and more pungent. At last one day comes daylight where the snow is melted from the opening in front of you. And with the daylight come the notes of birds and the ringing of the woodpecker, rat-tat-tat, rat-tat-tat, from a tree nearby. But even these signs that the spring is at hand again would not tempt you out if it were not for another feeling that begins to assert itself and will not let you rest. You find you are hungry, horribly hungry, it is of no use to say to yourself that you are perfectly snug and contented where you are and that there is all the spring and summer to get up in. You are no longer contented. It is nearly five months since you had your last meal, 
and you will not have another till you go out for yourself and get it. Mumbling your paws will not satisfy you. There is really nothing for it but to get up. But, oh, what a business it is, that getting up. Your shoulders are cramped and your back is stiff. And as for your legs underneath you, you wonder if they really ever will get supple and strong again. First, you lift your head from your breast and try moving your neck about and sniff at the walls of your den. Then you unfold your arms and, ouch, how they crack. First one and then the other. At last you begin to roll from one side to the other and try to stretch each hind leg in turn. Then, cautiously letting yourself drop on all fours, you give a step, and before you know it, you have staggered out into the open air. It is very early in the morning, and the day is just breaking, and all the mountainside is covered with a clinging, pearly mist. But to your eyes, the light seems very strong, and the smell of the new moist earth and the resinous scent of the pines almost hurts your nostrils. One side of the gully in front of you is brown and bare, but in the bottom and clinging to the other side are patches of moist and half-melted snow. And on all sides you hear the drip of falling moisture and the ripple of little streams of water which are running away to swell the creeks and rivers in every valley bottom. You are shockingly unsteady on your feet and feel very dazed and feeble, but you are also hungrier than ever now, with the keen morning air wetting your appetite, and the immediate business ahead of you is to find food. So you turn to the bank at your side and begin to grub, and as you grub, you wander on, eating the roots that you scratch up and the young shoots of plants that are appearing here and there. And all the time the day is growing and the sensation is coming back to your limbs and your hunger is getting satisfied, and you are wider and wider awake, and thoroughly interested in what you are about, before you are aware of it, you are fairly started on another year of life. That is how a bear begins each spring. It may be a few days later or a few days earlier when one comes out, but the sensations are the same. You are always just as stiff, and the smells are as pungent, and the light is as strong, and the hunger as great. For the first few days, you really think of nothing but of finding enough to eat. As soon as you have eaten, and eaten until you think you are satisfied, you are hungry again. And so you wander around looking for food and going back to your den to sleep. That spring, when I came out, it was very much as it had been the spring before, when I was a little cub. The squirrels were chattering in the trees. I wondered whether old Blackie had been burned in the fire. And the woodpecker was as busy as ever, rat-tat-tat, rat-tat-tat, overhead. There were several woodchucks, fat, waddling things, living in the same gully with me. And they had been abroad for some days when I woke up. On my way down to the stream on that first morning, I found a porcupine in my path, but did not stop to slap it. By the river's bank, the little brown-coated minks were hunting among the grass, and by the dam the beavers were hard at work protecting and strengthening their house against the spring floods, which were already rising. It was only a couple of hundred yards or so from my den to the stream, and for the first few days I hardly went further than that. But it was impossible that I should not all the time, that is, as soon as I could think of anything except my hunger, be contrasting this spring with the spring before, 
when Kawa and I had played about the rock and the cedar trees, and I had tumbled down the hill, and the more I thought of it, the less I liked being alone, and my mother and father I knew must be somewhere close by me, for I presumed they had spent the winter in the spot that they had chosen, so I made up my mind to go and join them again. It was in the early evening that I went, about a week after I'd come out of my winter quarters, and I had no trouble in finding the place, but when I did find it I also found things that I did not expect. Surely, I said to myself as I came near, that is little Kawa's voice. There could be no doubt about it. She was squealing just as she used to do when she tried to pull me away from the rock by my hind foot. So I hurried on to see what it could mean, and suddenly the truth dawned upon me. My parents had two new children. I had never thought of that possibility. I heard my mother's voice warning the cubs that someone was coming, and as I appeared the young ones ran and snuggled up to her and stared at me as if I was a stranger, and they were afraid of me, as I suppose they were. It made me feel awkward and almost as if my mother was a stranger too, but after standing still for a little time and watching them I walked up. Mother met me kindly, but somehow not like a mother meeting her own cub, but like a she-bear meeting any he-bear in the forest. The cubs kept behind her and out of the way. I spoke to mother and rubbed noses with her and told her that I was glad to see her. She evidently thought well of me, and I was rather surprised when standing beside her to find that she was not nearly so much bigger than I, as I had supposed. But before I'd been there more than a minute, mother gave me a warning that father was coming, and turning, I saw him walking down the hillside towards us. He saw me at the same time and stopped and growled. At first I think, not knowing who I was, he was astonished to see my mother talking to a strange bear. When he did recognize me, however, I might still have been a stranger for any friendliness that he showed. He sat up in his haunches and growled, and then came on slowly, swinging his head and obviously not at all disposed to welcome me. Again I was surprised to see that he was not as big as I had thought, and for a moment wild ideas of fighting him, if that was what he wanted, came into my head. I wished to stay with mother, and even though he was my father, I did not see why I should go away alone and leave her. But tall though I was getting, I had not anything like my father's weight, and however bitterly I might wish to rebel, rebellion was useless. Besides, my mother, though she was kind to me, would undoubtedly have taken my father's part, as it was right that she should do. So I moved slowly away as my father came up, and as I did so, even the little cubs growled at me, siding, of course, with their father against the stranger whom they had never seen. Father did not try to attack me, but walked up to mother and began licking her to show that she belonged to him. I disliked going away and thought that perhaps he would relent, but when I sat down, as if I was intending to stay, he growled and told me that I was not wanted. I ought by this time to have grown accustomed to being alone and to have been incapable of letting myself be made miserable by a snub, even from my father, but I was not. I was wretched. I do not think that even on the first night after Kawa was caught, or on that morning when I saw her dead, that I felt as completely forlorn as I did that day when I turned away from my mother and went down the mountainside back to my own place alone. The squirrels chattered at me, and the woodpecker rat-tat-tatted, 
and the woodchuck scurried away, and I hated them all. What company were they to me? I was lonely, and I craved the companionship of my own kind. But it was to be a long time before I found it. I was now a solitary bear, with my own life to live and my own way to make in the world, with no one to look to for guidance and no one to help me if I needed help. But many regarded me as an enemy and would have rejoiced if I were killed. In those first days I thought of the surly solitary bear who had taken our home while we were away and whom I had vowed some day to punish, and I began to understand in some measure why he was so bad-tempered. If we had met then, I almost believe I would have tried to make friends with him. I have said that many animals would have rejoiced had I been killed. This is not because bears are the enemies of other wild things, for we really kill very little except beetles and other insects, frogs and lizards and little things like mice and chipmunks. We are not as the wolves, the coyotes, the pumas, or the weasels, which live on the lives of other animals, and which every other thing in the woods regards as its sworn foe. Still, smaller animals are mostly afraid of us, and the carcass of a dead bear means a feast for a number of hungry things. If a bear cannot defend his own life, he will have no friends to do it for him. And while, as I have said before, a full-grown bear in the mountains has no need to fear any living thing, man always accepted, in a stand-up fight, it is nonetheless necessary to be always on one's guard. In my case, fear had nothing to do with my hatred of loneliness. Even the thought of man himself gave me no uneasiness. I was sure that no human beings were as yet within many miles of my home, and I knew that I should always have abundant warning of their coming. Moreover, I already knew man. He was not to me the thing of terror and mystery that he had been a year ago, or that he still was to most of the forest folk. I had cause enough, it is true, to know how dangerous and how savagely cruel he was, and for that I hated him. But I had also seen enough of him to have a contempt for his blindness and his lack of the sense of scent. Had I not, again and again, went in the town, dodged round the corner of a building and waited while he passed a few yards away, or stood immovable in the dark shadow of a building and looked straight at him while he went by, utterly unconscious that I was near. Nothing could live in the forest for a week with no more eyesight, scent, or hearing than a man possesses, and without his thunderstick he would be as helpless as a lame deer. All this I understood and was not afraid that if our paths should cross again I should not be well able to take care of myself. But while there was no fear added to my loneliness, the loneliness itself was bad enough. Having none to provide for except myself, I had no difficulty in finding food. For the first few weeks, I think, I did nothing but wander aimlessly about and sleep, still using my winter den for that purpose. As the summer came on, however, I began to rove, roaming usually along the streams and sleeping there in the cool herbage by the water's edge during the heat of the day. My chief pleasure, I think, was in fishing, and I was so glad my mother had shown me how to do it. No bear, when hungry, could afford to fish for his food, for it takes too long. But I had all my time to myself, and nearly every morning and evening I used to get my trout for breakfast or for supper. At the end of a long, hot day, I know nothing pleasanter than 
after lying a while in the cold running water, to stretch oneself out along the river's edge under the shadow of a bush, wait, paw in water, till the trout comes gliding within striking distance, and then the sudden stroke, and afterwards the comfortable meal off the cool juicy fish in the soft night air. I became very skillful at fishing, and from days and days of practice it was seldom indeed that I lost my fish if once I struck. Time, too, I had for honey hunting, but I was never sure that it was worth the trouble and pain. In nine cases out of ten the honey was too deeply buried in a tree for me to be able to reach it, and in trying I was certain to get well stung for my pains. Once in a while, however, I came across a comb that was easy to reach, and the chance of one of those occasional finds made me spend not hours only but whole days at a time looking for the bees' nests. Along by the streams were many blueberry patches, though none so large as that which had cost Kawa her life. But during the season I could always find berries enough, and so, fishing and bee-hunting, eating berries and digging for roots, I wandered on through the summer. I had no one place that I could think of as a home more than any other. I preferred not to stay near my father and mother, and so let myself wander, heading for the most part westward and further into the mountains as the summer grew, and then in the autumn turning south again. I must have wandered over many hundred miles of mountain. But when the returning chill in the air told me that winter was not very far away, I worked round so as to get back into somewhat the same neighborhood as I had been in last winter, not more perhaps than ten miles away. On the whole, it was an uneventful year. Two or three times I met a grizzly, and always got out of the way as fast as I could. Once only I found myself in the neighborhood of man, and I gave him a wide berth. Many times, of course, in fact nearly every day, I met other bears like myself, and sometimes I made friends with them, and stayed in their company for the better part of a day, perhaps at a berry patch, or in the wide shallows of a stream. But there was no place for me, a strong, growing he-bear, getting on for two years old, in any of the families that I came across. Parents with young cubs did not want me. Young bears in their second year were usually in couples. The solitary bears that I met were generally he-bears, older than I, and though we were friendly on meeting, neither cared for the other's companionship. Again and again in these meetings I was struck by the fact that I was unusually big and strong for my age, the result, I suppose, as I have already said, of the accident that threw me on my own resources so young. I never met young bears of my own age that did not seem like cubs to me. Many times they came across bears who were one and even two years older than myself, but who had certainly no advantage of me in height, and I think none in weight, but I had no occasion to test my strength in earnest that summer, and when winter came and the mountain peaks in the neighborhood showed white again against the dull gray sky, I was still a solitary animal and acutely conscious of my loneliness. That year I made my den in a cave which I found high up on a mountainside, and which had evidently been used by bearers at some time or other, though not for the last year or two. There I made my nest with less trouble than the year before, and at the first serious snowfall I shut myself up for another long sleep. End of chapter 8. Recording by Wayne Anderson, Chelsea, Quebec.